Before we begin, a quick note. This episode touches on the difficult subject of self-harm. Last time on Have You Seen This Man? John Rufo had been handcuffed and was on his way to prison. And I it was walking him out of the courtroom, and all of a sudden I heard in Judge Williams' very distinct voice, hold on, Marshal Kevin. To everyone's surprise, the judge let him go, trusting him to show up for the start of a 17-year sentence. The next thing I know, I get a phone call, where's Rufo? Rufo had vanished. And it turns out, this was not the first time people underestimated him. I'm Sunny Hostin from ABC News. This is Have You Seen This Man? St. Patrick's Day in New York, 1996. It's a day of parades, revelry, and drinking. But for John Rufo, this was a day of quiet desperation. He was on the brink of being exposed as a fraud. As bagpipes blared on Fifth Avenue, John Rufo hunkered down in his office, 11 floors up. He called in his assistant, closed the door, and made a very unusual request. Here's ABC News senior investigative reporter, Matthew Mosk. I just left the interstate in Westchester County, New York. I'm in the car with my colleague, Alex Hosenball, and with Jody Lynn Bachman, John Rufo's former assistant. We're trying to find the offices of the titan of tobacco, Philip Morris. I see it. Does this look familiar to you? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. How weird. Jody's usually a brassy, wisecracking, fast-talking New Yorker. But today, she's different. She's gotten very quiet. We're passing under a canopy of oak trees along a perfectly manicured driveway, and we cross a small bridge that carries us over what could only be described as a moat. And then we see the building. Jody recognizes it instantly. She's been here before. This bring back any memories? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, all the windows. How did I remember all the windows? Two decades ago, this is where Jody's life changed forever. This majestic building, like a futuristic glass Aztec temple, rises like a shrine to the corporate juggernaut that once dominated American tobacco. I look at Jody. She has her hands over her face. As I ease into a parking spot, I realize she's crying. You're upset. What is it? What happened when we drove in here? It's what I remembered, all the glass. How did I remember? Why Why do you remember some things and you just... How did I fall for it? To Jody, 
This was the place where she made the mistake of trusting John Rufo. 23 years ago, it was literally the scene of the crime. Back in the early 90s, everything was looking up for Rufo. His company had caught the dawn of the digital age. Across New York, law firms and corporations were ready to begin transferring and storing mountains of paper files onto computer servers. And Rufo's company had the machines to do the job. Rufo hired his wife, Linda. He filled his business with friends from the old neighborhood and those they met along the way, like Jody, who had studied with Linda at Pace so University. And I asked her if she wanted to go to lunch one day because we were both in Park Row City Hall area. Mm-hmm. And she said, oh, sure, but I remember Professor Raskin saying, oh, uh, you're, like your last name, she says, Toretto. She said, but I just got married, it's Rufo. So that's how we met. So we bonded. Not only did they work together, they grew close. Linda and John, Jody and her boyfriend, Ray. When I started talking with Jody, I asked her, what was Rufo like back then? We knew what he looked like, but I heard people who met him were surprised when he opened his mouth. Somebody told me he had a very deep voice, that his voice didn't match his body. No, it it was a deep voice. You know, he sounded like a typical New Yorker. Jody found an old home movie where you can actually hear Rufo. In the video, he's showboating in a goofy hat and at first adopts a bit of a southern drawl. So I hope that this at least is a good introduction. As far as we know, this is the only extended recording where you can actually hear John Rufo. So listen carefully. As it starts, he's asking Jody's boyfriend, Ray, if the camera is on. Hey, Ray, you got it on? I thought we ought to meet on tape since uh, it seems like you have no problem meeting me on tape. I figure why not you meet me on tape. He starts drumming the guitar for Jody's young son, Cliff, who's giggling in his pajamas. So how was your new year, Ray? Oh, it was fine. Here, a chirpy young Linda with blown out hair and a wide grin moves into the camera frame. She's about to make one of those joking remarks that meant nothing in the moment, just a little barb. But in retrospect, the harmless dig feels much, much heavier. Ray, do you know of any nice, normal men for me? Because this, gotta go. Every day, Linda, John, Jody, and others in their extended circle would commute to Fifth Avenue in Manhattan and the 11th floor offices of Rufo's company, CCS. Jody still remembers those days. So did CCS have a large number of clients or? They were getting, they had started to get a large amount of clients. They had. um, Who were the uh, most important clients? Philip Morris was one of them. Philip Morris, the global cigarette giant. Come to where the flavor is. Come to Marlborough. To some, the company and its ubiquitous cartons 
were as much a part of life's daily fabric as a can of Coke or a drive through burger. To others, they loomed as the name behind a sinful and addictive public health threat. But to Rufo, Philip Morris was the client that would change everything. Rufo got to know a mid-level executive there named Ed Reiners. And this story starts the day Reiners loses his job. So this, Reiners gets fired by Philip Morris. Uh, That's Jack Mullaney, who led the FBI investigation into Rufo. He had no place to go, so he would go down and hang out with Rufo all day long. And they came up with this scheme. Reiners told me this. So it's 1993, just a few weeks after Reiners had lost his job, and the two men hatched a plan over a series of dinners in New York. The idea was simple. Approach banks and explain that Philip Morris was starting a secret operation to research smoke-free cigarettes. This was a time when tobacco companies were already under intense scrutiny over the dangerous health effects of their product. Lawsuits loomed. So cloak and dagger secrecy was part of the culture. Rufo and Reiners seized on that dynamic. In their presentation to banks, Reiners said he was still on the Philip Morris payroll and was heading up the ambitious project. He said they'd be setting up secret labs all over the world. The, the proposal was an, some sort of an offshore, they couldn't talk much about it, but it was an offshore deal in seven locations where they were going to need uh, computers. Rufo would be supplying the computers for these supposed labs. And for that, they would need to borrow money. Lots of it. The two told the banks it was all highly classified. In fact... It was so secret that if you were to call Philip Morris and ask for Ed Reiners, they would tell you he didn't work there. They even came up with a code name for their scheme... Project Star. Now, one of the biggest challenges facing the swindlers was convincing the banks they spoke on behalf of Philip Morris. To achieve this, they'd need to present bankers with an official letter signed by the company's corporate secretary. But that person, a woman named Diane McAdams, knew nothing about the scheme. I met up with a retired U.S. Marshal at a Virginia restaurant to learn more about this. His name is Barry Bowright, and he spent years leading the manhunt for Rufo. They, you know, needed some proof that it was okay for Reiners to talk on behalf of Philip Morris. So uh, that's when they drafted up this letter on Philip Morris' um, letterhead. As he described it, Rufo and Reiners reached out to Diane McAdams, but they told her they were DJs from a call-in radio contest, and she had won a free dinner. You know, they're going to send somebody over with the, um, with the gift certificate, and she has to sign, you know, she has to sign for the gift certificate or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's how they got her signature. They took her signature and put it on the stock. Barry said the two men then puzzled through another problem. The banks would see right through the scam if the document wasn't properly stamped with the Philip Morris corporate seal, that distinctive raised marker used on official papers. So they went to this local store in New York City, there's probably a hundred of them, that make seals. And they got a seal for like 
John Morris, Bill Morris, Philip Morris, and Tom Morris, you know, all these different. So they had the Philip Morris seal. They were clever. Very clever. Yeah. Yeah. Philip Morris had no idea any of this was going on, and no one called them to ask. The plan started to work. First to sign, Signet Bank, a regional banking powerhouse headquartered in Richmond, Virginia. So the, the first payment was $25 million. They were, they were in shock. So they went back for another $25 million. And it just kept growing. Jack Mullaney from the FBI said Reiners and Rufo couldn't believe it. In the end, they would borrow more than $80 million just from Signet. I want to pause here for a moment to consider how mind-blowing this is. Banks lined up to loan so much money to Project Star, and knowing how hard it can be to secure a loan, how did Rufo and Reiners pull this off? You have people saying, hey, you know, to get a mortgage, you got to give a blood sample. And they're lending, Signet ends up lending $81 million, and it doesn't even make a phone call to check this out? That's Bill Atkinson. He was a financial reporter with the Baltimore Sun at the time. And Bill told me one reason Rufo and Reiner succeeded was that banks wanted to be in business with industry-leading companies. And they didn't ask for collateral, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. These were This was an unsecured loan. That's un heard of. But then again, who are you to question Philip Morris? You know, who are you to to challenge it? You're going to go along with it because you want this business. The company was flying high. By all accounts, 1995 was one of its most profitable years, even with pending lawsuits and a declining market for cigarettes. So banks desperately wanted to be in business with Philip Morris. In banking, the the mantra is know your customer. Who are you dealing with? Well, of course they knew who they're dealing with. They, they've dealt with this guy for, you know, 10 years or so. So know your customer. Philip Morris. Do we know Philip Morris? Absolutely. That first bank to bite on the scam, Signet, reveled in the chance to work with Philip Morris. And as the size of the loan grew, they saw a chance to become an even bigger player in global banking. They would do this by serving as a middleman, bringing other banks to the table. And so what what Signet did was, I mean, it really swallowed this thing um, hook, line, and sinker because it knew it would put it on the map as a, a bank that was a player. But as the scam was growing, Reiners was becoming increasingly paranoid about being found out. He says, you know, you're going to hear that I'm no longer with Philip Morris. Don't believe any of that because this is the way we have to protect the the secrecy of this project. And so Reiners, I mean, Reiners has everything. He's got the letter that allows him to carry on this business with, with, for Philip Morris. That letter, a forgery that looked so convincingly like it had been signed by corporate secretary, Diane McAdams and stamped with a company seal. It seemed they had thought of everything. Absolutely. They, that trust, that believability, that was the foundation of this entire scam. And they were masters at it. The final element of the scheme was its most elegant. 
instead of buying computers with the millions they were borrowing, what they were actually doing was using it to trade stock. Rufo had dabbled for years as a day trader and had grown confident in his abilities. He was convinced he could make enough money in the markets to repay the banks and still pocket millions. But just like Bernie Madoff, he learned the scam only works if you keep making money. At first, Rufo and Reiners only pretended to be Wall Street high rollers. But as the loan money poured in, they became real ones. They had so much money to trade that firms like Smith Barney and Merrill Lynch were fighting to win their business. Rufo's wife, Linda, said for him, it was like living a dream. When Wall Street, the movie, came out, that was it. He saw himself as Gordon Gecko. He even started wearing suspenders, because that was a real popular thing when that movie came out. He, he fashioned himself after Michael Douglas's character. He thought that character. was like the greatest movie. Gordon Gecko, the fictional tycoon in the Hollywood blockbuster. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed is good. Yes, he used to say that. Rufo and Reiners began making the rounds at New York's most expensive restaurants, ordering steaks and $1,000 bottles of wine. And they began spinning elaborate lies as they tried to explain to the brokers where all this money was coming from. This is a recording federal agents made during their investigation into Rufo. The tape is old and damaged, but you can still make out how one broker described Rufo's confidence and bravado. To say things like, you know, like, he, he was obviously a multi-billionaire. Like, how did he get away with that? Another broker from Smith Barney handled trades for Rufo almost daily. He told investigators Rufo boasted to him that he had access to millions because he was secretly working for the government. Rufo would talk about doing classified work for the CIA, having close friends in the FBI, hunting spies, securing lost stores of plutonium. At one point, Rufo even told the broker he was invited to serve as a technical advisor on the John Travolta movie, Broken Arrow. I just realized something. I never actually killed anyone before. I mean, I don't know what the big deal is. I really don't. Rufo told them the plot, which is about a hunt for loose nukes, was based on his real-life experience. Rufo and Reiners told stories like this to lots of people. A number of them later told the FBI that Rufo and Reiners had shared a story about how they met, not while signing mundane computer leasing agreements while Reiners was still working at Philip Morris, but during the Vietnam War, serving their country in battle. Rufo said he was taken prisoner during an intelligence mission, and it was Reiners with a special forces team who came to his rescue. Linda just rolled her eyes when I asked her about that. John was afraid to take an aspirin. He would have gone to Canada to avoid being inducted if he were old enough. Like so much of John Rufo's story, 
The more you learn, the harder it becomes to sort truth from lies. No, he did not serve in Vietnam. And no, he was not consulting on Hollywood thrillers. But we would eventually start to hear things that made us wonder if there was a germ of truth behind some of the other stories that Rufo spun. Did he do secret work for the U.S. government? Hunt spies? Have friends in the FBI? What was beyond doubt was that he had money. Those millions he was using to trade stock. That was very much real. His assistant, Jody Bachman, remembers Rufo obsessing over his stock portfolio. She said he spent hours cloistered in his office making trades. And John had a special phone. It was like the bat phone, I used to call it. Special phone just for Smith Barney. He had a special phone, and if he wanted to make a trade, and he would watch, he would be so arrogant, he would say, look at this, I'm going to go trade now. $73 million worth of Philip Morris stock. To Jody, Rufa looked like a shrewd operator. So when he called her into his office on that St. Patrick's Day in 1996 and asked her to pretend to be Philip Morris corporate secretary, Diane McAdams, she assumed he had a good reason. Over the next day, Jody practiced Diane's signature. She even put a brace on her arm, so if the signature didn't match perfectly, she could blame an injured wrist. Rufo gave her a stack of fake business cards with her new identity, and the next evening, she brought them with her to Westchester County, New York, where Philip Morris had offices. Ed Reiners no longer worked for the company, but his ex-wife did, and he had talked her into letting them sneak into the offices after hours. Up they went to a fourth-floor conference room where a group of bankers was waiting to meet them. Jody introduced herself with a new name, Diane. Jody said she didn't know the real reason Rufo sent her to Westchester with Reiners and a new identity. Turns out it was an executive from one of the banks who wanted to meet. He had begun harboring doubts about Project Star. But this guy questions it. And it ends up, they call Reiners, and, and Reiners comes up and says, well, you know what? Come up to New York on Tuesday. I'll sit down. We, we'll sit down with the uh, secretary of Philip Morris and, and you ask her whatever questions you want. I mean, he was quick on his feet. That banker also called the FBI. When Jack Mullaney caught the case, he just wasn't sure. Were Rufo and Reiners legit or were they con men? He had one way to find out. He would follow the bankers that evening to the meeting in Westchester County, and those bankers wore wires. And these two, the bankers go in, and right away, Ed Reiners introduces himself. Everybody knew him, and he introduces Diane McAdams. So I called my friend out of Manhattan. Mullaney called one of his FBI colleagues and asked him to check. Is the woman handing out her business cards really who she says she is? And I said, do me a favor, find out if Di where Diane McAdams is right now. He called me back, he says she's in her office in Midtown Manhattan. So that was it. Now, as far as I was concerned, we have probable cause to arrest this guy. Mullaney called his supervisor. That woman telling the banker she was Diane McAdams was a fake. 
and his supervisor responded. He says, you have to go ahead and arrest him when you're done. This was three years into Project Star. By this point, Rufo and Reiners had borrowed $353 million. And they had sunk more than $200 million of that into the stock market. Reiners had a new $2.9 million condo in the Trump Palace in Manhattan. Millions more were unaccounted for. When the meeting ended, Ed Reiners rode the elevator down to the lobby with Jody. The doors slid open and FBI agents were there waiting. Men and women surrounding us, telling us we were under arrest. I'm looking at Ed and I'm like, what happened? Reiners headed off to prison, but charges against Jody were eventually dropped. Still, the memory of being led away in handcuffs has always hung over her. And so does this. Strangely, the one person not arrested that evening was Rufo. Where the hell is John? What, where, where, what happened? He must have known to stay away because if they, he's anywhere in their sight, in their radar, he would have been arrested too. Rufo's absence from that meeting was the first in a series of moves that would protect him, even as the myth of Project Star came crashing down around him. When we come back, the U.S. Marshals try to make sense of the note he left for his wife after the break. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the roaring 20s. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Deputies Chris Lohr and Danielle Shimchik guide me through the layers of security and into the offices of the U.S. Marshals. The room spreads out on an upper floor of a gleaming office tower in downtown Richmond. The deputies inherited the Rufo case from a long line of investigators who've been vigorously working it since almost the moment he fled. We're back in the Rufo room. Danielle has been doing something they might have hired John Rufo's old company to do 25 years ago. She's converting thousands of dusty paper files into a slick, computerized tracking program on her laptop. She and Chris have experience chasing fugitives, but no one like this. And 
how different is this from like anything you were doing up till that point? Um, completely different. Yeah. I think Danielle and I both had experience in a lot of other cold cases. Um, you know, guys who'd been on the run for quite some time before, you know, we had taken over the cases, but this is just unlike any of the others. To have an individual with this who was, you know, owner of a computer company, married, no criminal history, and obviously was able to deceive a lot of people, this is a very different type of case than far, far different than the typical fugitive case. In a typical case, the suspect flees in a panic. They grab what they can and go. But when John Rufo decided to run in 1998, nearly two years had passed since those first arrests at the Philip Morris offices. Not only did he have time to plan an escape, Rufo was crafty. His crime wasn't impulsive or violent. He was a con artist and con artists plot. They have a knack for creating false identities and bogus businesses. And with a magician's sleight of hand, they have the ability to make money or an entire person just disappear. It was Jody who told me there was a book he may have seen before he fled, written by the popular author, John Grisham. Did you read The Partner? Grisham partner? No. Talks about the guy who has this other wife in, in another country, and he's got all these people working on his passports, different passports, and things like that. And it came out in 98, 97, something like that. And I, and I kept the book because it was just when I read it, I felt like I was reading John. The novel hit the shelves the year before Rufo disappeared, and it had striking similarities to his real-life caper. In the fictional story, a Southern lawyer vanishes with millions of dollars in stolen money, and on his way out of the country, he fakes his own death, which got me thinking about that handwritten letter the one Rufo left on the kitchen table for Linda. At first, Linda said she thought it was a suicide note. Look what happened. Look what he left. And, you know, I was just hysterical. I asked a friend whose voice and accent are similar to Rufo's to read the note. Dear Linda, I guess everyone has a breaking point. I think I finally reached mine. Even though I did nothing criminal, I got us into too much trouble. I can't make this right, even though I tried real hard to do that. Given the choice between living like this with you or dying, I have no choice. Either way, the result is I wind up leaving you all alone. I thought about it a lot, but I never had the courage to kill myself. See, I know if I'm dead, you can deal with this once and for all. If I'm alive and lingering around or in the cell, what purpose does that serve? You would be more miserable. Please help yourself by knowing I beat them and I gave myself to God. Love always, John. This was a question the marshals had spent considerable time studying. Had John Rufo taken his own life rather than report to prison? Or was he just trying to make it look that way? To answer that question, Chris and Danielle turned to Dr. Michael Burke. Burke is the chief psychologist at the U.S. Marshals Service, and he serves as the head of the Behavioral Analysis Unit. I met him last summer, and we talked outside the headquarters building. 
I asked him what he made of this note, which was scrawled in cursive on what looked like notebook paper. It is not a suicide note, in my opinion. Uh, It may have been left as an attempt to mislead investigators. It may have been left for other reasons known only to Rufo, but there are ways to distinguish between accurate suicide notes, ones in which the people uh, actually intend to complete suicide, and those that are simulated, those that are designed to throw people off, off, you know, designed for us to be fooled. You know, it's sort of like, don't bother coming to look for me because I'm going to go in the woods. Some of the hallmarks of a genuine suicide note, he said, were missing. Generally, when someone is intending to take their life, there is some sort of um, completion phrases. A lot of times people think that they will not refer to exactly how they intend to take their life, but in many cases they will. They will actually say, I'm going to go hang myself. I'm going to go, you know, take pills or whatever. Dr. Burke told me suicide notes often include an apology. They could apologize for the mess that they're leaving behind because the body will be found and it might be found in a state that's um, that's going to be upsetting. So they will they will either apologize for the mess, they will apologize for the upset, or they will apologize in a general way for the situation that they're leaving them in. That this might incur expenses, that this is going to cause them inconvenience. You'll see that Dr. Burke said with Rufo... It was what he didn't say that caught his attention most. Sometimes also, and particularly with someone like Rufo, as meticulous as he was with his business dealings, uh, I would fully expect someone like him to, to leave a second page with bank account numbers, passwords, um, perhaps a version of some sort of will. Um, if you've been in control, which clearly he was, there would be this turning over. There was nothing. Suicide certainly didn't seem to fit Rufo's personality. Just as Linda said he would never go off to fight a war, she also believes he was too squeamish to harm himself. I could never see him killing himself. He's not that brave. Dr. Burke thought Rufo was a narcissist. Narcissists tend not to kill themselves. Um, they're, They're too special. The thought of of ending their life when they can go out and continue to be special and continue to use their skills and start over again. It'd be much more appealing for him, much more exciting to to have the idea of living another adventure. Then there are Rufo's actions in the days leading up to his getaway, like when he suggested to Linda he would send for her. Uh, And she opined that she felt he was being serious about that, that, you know, that he might leave. She she told us that she waited for years thinking he was going to contact her. Yeah, well, that's, I think he said that almost verbatim, like, I will send for you. Um, And uh, so, yeah, I can see why she thought that. It's kind of sad. And then there's that stop at the ATM in Queens, the last confirmed sighting of Rufo. Yeah, and he left with a little travel bag. There's many things he would not have needed to go through if he actually intended to to take his life. He he doesn't have to leave a sort of a vague note and then rent a car and, you know, take it up to the airport and, and take your travel bag and take out money from an ATM. I mean, it's ridiculous. What do you need money for? Yeah, what do you need money from an ATM? There's so many things like that. that In addition to providing his assessment of Rufo's final days, Dr. Burke also left Chris and Danielle 
with some thoughts about how to find him. So, so there's aspects of people's personality that, that can show up as like habits and yeah, impulsive things that are very hard to put down or very hard to just say, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna be this way anymore. It's like, well, Dr. Burke believes that activity was embodied by his obsession with trading stock. I would guess he's out there doing something that has, that's high risk and high payoff. It's uh, much more than, I mean, if he is day trading, it's, it's significant amounts of money that he's playing around with. With this analysis, Danielle and Chris have all but eliminated the idea that Rufo took his own life that day in 1998. He may not be dead, but he has remained a ghost. Rufo's not like other fugitives because he vanished so completely, making this one of the toughest cases the marshals have ever faced. Does it like, I guess what I'm asking is like, does this case get into your head? Yeah. We text each other at like six in the morning or whatever, or sometimes at night, be like, hey, just the thought we should do this. And we'll try to like bounce ideas back and forth. Yeah, it's absolutely something that's on your mind before you go to bed and something you're thinking about at odd hours. You know, I'll start a note on my iPhone and just write things down before I forget it. Um, sometimes I'll try not to text Danielle at an odd hour, but sometimes I think, hey, what do we think about job. this? We just, we just do it. I'll make Chris it. believes the case requires a certain rigid precision, not gut or guesswork. It's slow and at times frustrating work. So I think what we try to do is it's so easy to get so swept away on so many different, what you could refer to as a lead, but really it's a, a hunch or speculation or just a guess. What do we actually know? What is a fact? You know, that's one thing that we really try to do is just keep it focused to what is actually known and what is just something that's maybe just a story that's gotten passed on over the years and as happens, people start giving weight to it. And after the ATM, are there any knowns? No. No. For Linda Rufo, the early days after her husband disappeared were head spinning. I thought maybe he will reach out to me. I took a little bit of money out of my bank account to have cash on me in case I had to go. For the U.S. Marshals, Every possible sighting is critical. Pitch, Ibuki drills this one to left field and deep. This one is gone. And at Dodgers Stadium, a familiar face flashes across the screen, four rows behind home plate. Back, it's off the wall. Here comes Bogarts in a score. Is that him or not? The Dodgers footage. Is that him? Is that Rufo or is it not? Next time on. Have you seen this man? And one final note. This episode touched on the difficult subject of self-harm. If you are struggling with thoughts of suicide or worried about a friend or loved one, help is available. Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. 1-800-273-TALK or text TALK, T-A-L-K, to 741741 for free confidential emotional support, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Even if it feels like it, you are not alone. If you have any information that can help the U.S. Marshals find this man, call 1-877-WANTED-2. That's 1-877-926-8332. Or send a tip from your phone through the U.S. Marshal app called USMS Tips. That's USMS Tips. And if you haven't already, follow this podcast to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. Let us know what you think with a rating and review. Have You Seen This Man is a production of ABC Audio and the ABC News Investigative Unit. Written and reported by senior investigative producer Matthew Moss. Field production by Alex Hosenball. Additional reporting by Kate Holland. Produced by Susie Liu and Kate Holland. Mixing and mastering by Evan Viola. Special thanks to Aaron Ferrer, Louis Millman, Leighton Schneider, Aaron Katursky, Brenda Salinas Baker, Josh Cohen, Chris Vlasto, and Stacia Deshishku. Cindy Galley, Matthew Mosk, and Liz Alessi are executive producers. I'm Sunny Hostin. <laughs>